Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. In our summer 2022 issue of Connecticut Explored, author and historian Steve Thornton brings us a story of the internationally renowned activist, actor, singer, Paul Robinson, and his wife, Islanda, an author and activist in her own right. The Robinsons' home from 1941 to 1953 in Enfield, Connecticut, is on the Connecticut State Freedom Trail, as well as the National Register of Historic Places. I just had to see it for myself, so I took a ride to Enfield. I was unprepared to see such a beautiful road full of well-maintained homes that could rightly be called mansions. The Hartford Current report on April 1st of 1941 says, A stucco house is situated on two and a half acres of land. The property includes a recreational building which houses a bowling alley and an outdoor swimming pool. A purchase price of about $10,000 was indicated by the attached revenue stamp. The next day, The Current reported, Paul Robeson will move into his new home here at the beaches on May 1st. The luxurious house is in a state of disrepair, but Mrs. Robeson has arranged with local workers to renovate the house and grounds. Built in 1903, the living room is richly paneled with a marble mantel. The grounds are shaded by many old trees, including several beaches on the broad lawns in front of the house. What attracted the Robesons to Enfield? Why did the FBI keep them under surveillance in Connecticut? And how did a Robeson concert at Hartford's Weaver High School in 1952 become a local controversy? Let's hear from Steve Thornton about the Robeson's activism and life while living in Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I was so intrigued about your article in our summer issue of Connecticut Explored about the internationally famous Paul Robeson and his wife moving to Enfield, Connecticut. Now, I know people think of celebrities in Connecticut and Fairfield County, but he may be the first one I've heard of in Enfield. But could you give us a little background about who Paul Robeson and his wife, Essie, were? Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Paul Robeson was born in 1898. His father was a preacher, but he had been enslaved up until the Civil War. His mother was a Quaker. And like many other folks in the uh, late 19th century, earlier 20th century, you know, there was very palpable discrimination and racism. And, and um, his father had to deal with that and sort of it pushed him out of his job uh, as, a, uh, as a minister of the, the church. Paul was born in Princeton, New Jersey, and he... Um, got a, um, a academic scholarship to Rutgers, which was right nearby. And he, he had a stellar career, both in high school and in college, uh, All-American in football, class valedictorian. He became a, a lawyer at Columbia, uh, trained as a lawyer. He was not interested really in practicing it after a while. He married Eslanda Good, that was that's uh, Aslanda's uh, born name um, in 1927. So this was after college. They had one child, Paul Jr., 
And by the time they had a child, they moved to Enfield. This was, I think, from everything I've read and I uh, heard about, it was Eslanda or Essie's dream to get to some place that was out of the limelight, even though it was a very big house. It was not Harlem, which is where they had lived just before that, um, or anywhere else in the world where they had traveled. But she she had she liked it. It was a major operation to fix up and to take care of. But it didn't stop Eslanda from continuing her anthropological work. She was a, a trained an anthropologist, and she not only wrote books, she traveled uh, to African nations and did studying there. And she worked very closely with Pearl Buck. They, in fact, um, they wrote a book together, and they were very good friends. That's sort of the, you know, the sort of the personal side of Paul and Essie. But the work they did as political activists was pretty extraordinary from the, really from the 20s, uh, the 1920s to the 1970s. Uh, they never stopped with their political advocacy and were often uh, called upon to get involved in a number of issues. Certainly, Paul was involved in the general civil rights struggle and anti-lynching. In fact, he met President Truman and he, he criticized him to his face for not doing anything about lynching, which was happening right there and right that time in the 1940s as well. But, but they also worked on a number of other issues that they were called upon to do. For instance, uh, Paul, who had played professional football, was called upon to, to advocate for the integration of professional baseball before Jackie Robinson was able to break that barrier. And, and I think that um, that's part of what kept them in the public eye, but it was um, Paul's work on stage and uh, in recordings and in movies that really, uh, his popularity was really, really shot up uh, it, you know, into the stratosphere. And Essie, although she was not as high profile, she started to work with the People's Party in Connecticut and actually ran for public office in Connecticut. And so she did a lot of work around Hartford. Yeah, including um, street corner speaking against lynching, believe it or not. And, and she spoke at the YWCA. And her politics and her arguments were certainly as sharp, if not sharper than, than Paul's. So they both were, I thought, very admirable in their lifelong commitment to equality and, and justice. It's so interesting to me to have somebody like Paul and Essie, both of them are so incredibly bright, a uh, lot of intellect to work with and a lot of passion in their work. Paul is so amazing because he starts out, he's clearly a really great student. He gets into Rutgers, so he's clearly bright. Then he's, it's discovered that he's so athletically gifted, so he could have gone just the athletic route. Uh, and then the, his voice and this charisma that he has on stage emerges. Right. I, you know, most people would just be 
thrilled to have one of those three gifts and pursue a lifetime career, but to be so multi-talented is pretty astonishing. Yeah, he was, a, he was a triple threat. He sure was. And I read that their son had been schooled a little bit in Russia, but then when they came right. here, he was enrolled in Connecticut schools, right? Right, right. Which was one of the reasons uh, I believe that, that Eslando wanted to move to Connecticut, to sort of um, uh, move him to the Connecticut suburbs and schools and, and stuff like that, where apparently he had um, a very good time. I, I don't know too many specifics about that, but he, uh, he certainly did uh, shine during his time in the Enfield schools. When I was looking through the Hartford Current about their purchasing the house in Enfield, there's one story in April, April 1st of 1941. The headline is, Paul Robeson, Negro singer-actor, purchases large home in Enfield. Then there's one the next day called Enfield Home Made Ready for Robeson. Workers start putting house in shape for May 1 occupancy by singer and family. Now, these two Hartford Current articles don't mention that it's a Black family, and they they, they don't seem to indicate that anybody's ruffled or about that. Did you find anything on that? Well, um, no, uh, I, I do think that uh, one, he was so famous that everyone knew who he was. They knew he was a, an African-American. They knew he was an advocate for, for causes that, that um, he brought to the attention of the public. But also, uh, I think in some cases, the press would not go out of their way to um, point out that he was uh, black when everybody knew that. I think that that maybe that was their way of of saying, well, you know, we're we're we're, we're not racists. We're we're here too. But in fact, they a lot of the press did a lot of very provocative stuff, both in Connecticut and all around the world when he was advocating for various causes. So tell me a little bit about his growing interest in things like uh, Russia and communism and freedom for other countries, as well as African-Americans? Sure. Uh, Paul moved to London in uh, the 1920s, early 1920s, and he first got involved with a traveling theater troupe and then quickly advanced to the stage and to some very early film. The work he did uh, in terms of the film uh, was problematic work. It was about, it wasn't any better than in any other place, but he did the Emperor Emperor Jones and uh, All God's Children Got Wings, but it gave him a chance to really explore his abilities. So he learned his craft in England, But that's also where he learned his politics, I think, because the political campaigns that were going on in Britain at the time opened his eyes to injustice. And for about 10 years in England, he worked with uh, unemployed uh, movements, movements of the unemployed and calls for jobs. He worked with the Council on African Affairs, which zeroed in on colonialism in African nations and what the impact was on those African nations. 
And he also supported the Republican side, the good guys, if I may, on, in the Spanish Civil War. So he did this all in the late 20s and, and early 30s uh, until he came back to the United States. That was also the first time that he went to the Soviet Union. And it was because there were British socialists that he got to know and got to talk with. And they said, you know, you really should go here. It's a different kind of place. So he went to the Soviet Union. And apparently, I mean, he could have just gone there and come back and not said a lot about it. But he was very impressed with the way he felt about how the Russian people felt about him. Now, they knew him, I think they knew him pretty well from his theatrical work. But also, he was already outspoken in his politics. So he was uh, a good fit for the you know, Russian people who wanted to know more about this Black American who sort of was overcoming uh, the racism in the United States. Of course, that made J. Edgar Hoover and conservatives in the United States crazy. And that's when the, not only the investigation uh, and surveillance of him, but also the harassment of him started in like uh, 1939, the FBI started to investigate him. Yeah, you say in your article that um, this definitely, this kind of type of activity put them on FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's list of subversives, and they were secretly surveilled by governments at home and abroad, the FBI records reveal. So some of those records have become public now? Yes. I, you know, it's really interesting. Um, if you look on the FBI website, they've got, I think, the entire set of records that they've released. Of course, the FBI only releases what it wants to release, but they do have a lot of information. In fact, sometimes I've found when I was doing work on Malcolm X in Hartford, the only way I knew how many times that he went to Hartford to organize was through the FBI records. Because even in his autobiography or in the press, every single time was not covered, but there were agents every single time who were sending telegrams back to Hoover. So in a way, it's very useful. Um, it's very useful to have that kind of information. And Paul Robeson, the very first document I ever saw, which was years and years ago, was, I mean, I found it years ago, but obviously it, it related to, I think, his 1952 um, concert in Hartford. There was a um, surveillance of him meeting at the home of uh, a supporter on Albany Avenue in Hartford. And it was it an was entire story about who was there, what they said, and it was just, it was a cocktail party. And yet it became a big, you know, chapter in the FBI surveillance logs. And that, that was startling. First, it was startling that anybody would think Hartford was important enough to, to have FBI <laughs> all coming after. Soon I found out that that was, that was the norm, though. Let's hear excerpts from two pieces that appeared in the Hartford Current in 1949. The first is an article, and the second is a letter to the editor. Rogers says Paul Robeson is a disgrace. Commission chairman irked by Baritone's remarks on Russia. Paul Robeson is a disgrace to Connecticut, according to Willard B. Rogers, 
chairman of the Connecticut Development Commission. Mr. Rogers issued the following statement Friday night. For 35 years, I have contributed everything I could to the advancement of Connecticut, New England, and the United States. It has been my privilege to work with presidents, United States senators, and congressmen toward the end that we might develop, despite intervening wars, a great country. I am so inexplicably disgusted with the remarks of Paul Robeson and so disturbed that, in the press releases, he is repeatedly referred to as a resident of Enfield, that I am definitely ashamed. Suggested punishment to the editor of The Current. To the people of our sovereign state of Connecticut, I recommend the banishment of this man from our state and offer the following resolution. Whereas, one Paul Robeson of Enfield, Connecticut, has on foreign soil and in the presence of enemies of our country declared that the American Negro would never fight against Russia. And whereas, this same Paul Robeson, who has made a fortune in America and owns a large estate in Connecticut, speaks of oppression to himself and the people of his race. And whereas, his actions indicate a violation of Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution of the United States. Resolved that the people of Connecticut call upon the entire state government, its military and judicial departments, etc., to declare this man banished from our state and deny him entrance into Connecticut by any and all means legally permissible. Joseph A. Angrisani, Hartford. I'm glad you brought up the 1952 concert in Hartford. Give us the background on that big controversy. Sure, sure. Uh, well, Paul had his passport taken away from him in the 1940s, which is a very strange punishment indeed. First of all, he wasn't accused or convicted of any crime, but uh, the government removed his passport so he couldn't leave the country. Very strange. But at the same time, he was happy enough to do the work back here where he was born. He... For decades, his, his popularity was extraordinary. And then when this controversy started about him saying good things about Russia or bad things about racists, he became less, well, he was still just as popular, but, but uh, theater venues and uh, other entertainment platforms decided that they couldn't take a, a risk uh, with him anymore, and he could not get regular gigs uh, where he used to, where he used to sell out the Bushnell Hall, for instance. He could no longer get those those dates to play. So uh, a group of people in 1952 rented uh, the old Weaver High School, which is now the Martin Luther King Elementary School on Blue Hills Avenue in Hartford, and they were going to put a, a show on there in a, in a much smaller auditorium. This became a, an, an entire controversy because of course the, the school is the property of the Board of Education. So the Board of Education weighed in on whether or not this was something that they wanted to do, rent it to Paul Robeson. And then the city council uh, got into the act and there was a, you know, there was a split between various uh, leaders in the in the legislative scene. In the end, it turned out that he was uh, allowed to perform, and the show actually did go on. But they turned it into a, a battlefield. The city did 
they had what the newspapers called the, the greatest uh, mobilization of police that the city had ever seen. Uh, that may or may not have been true, but if you can picture the old Weaver High School and, and Keeney Park right near it, that's where they were all stationed and they were waiting for trouble. They were waiting for some kind of um, reaction to Paul Robeson based on the recent concerts that he had in, been involved in. In fact, everything went really smoothly. He, um, he was, he, I think he had six encores and uh, what, a, what a, a night to have been in that place at that time to hear him to sing, especially under that duress that he had to deal with. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. In your article, you talk about the supporters of having Robeson be able to appear at Weaver. So you you write, supporting Robeson's appearance, though, were the local chapter of the American Jewish Congress, Hartford Mayor Joseph Cronin, Republican City Council member Betty Knox, Board of Education President Louis Fox, civil rights lawyer George Ritter, and school board member Reverend Robert Moody, Hartford's first Black elected official. And I think if you're anybody that's a follower of Hartford history will recognize most of those names. They've at least had a street named after them, if nothing else. That's so, right. Um, clearly, there, there was that camp that really believed that his art, artistry ought to prevail and that the political opinions weren't going to dampen their enthusiasm for allowing him to have this appearance. Right. It was, uh, I think it was pretty... Um stand up for those people to say he has the right to sing here. So, you know, often they would add to that. Well, of course, I don't agree with his views, but he has a right. But I didn't hear a lot of that or I didn't read a lot of that. Well, what I read is, yep, we're voting in favor of uh, allowing him to sing. And they didn't they knew they wouldn't get uh, a lot of bad uh, feedback because Hartford was a, you know, a town that had a lot of activism in it and a, a growing black population and a, a lot of union folks who were very supportive of him as well. So it was, um, I, by the way, the, the way I found that out originally is that a number of decades ago, Susan Robeson, his granddaughter, had published a book and the book had lots of really wonderful photographs. I think it was called The Whole World in His Hands, maybe. And I went to see her and she talked about the Weaver High event. I was flabbergasted that anything like that happened in Hartford at all. And I used to be really flabbergasted that, that anything famous happened in the city. But of course, Hartford paralleled the rest of the country in its, uh, its political causes. So she spoke about that, and that made me want to learn more about his his life and also about his Hartford work. 
and it was 1952. So it was like the year after I was born and, and I felt the, and I lived in, I lived in Hartford, let's see, maybe in the late, later fifties, um, we moved from New York. So there were a lot of connections that I was really anxious to make. You say that as early as 1949, his wife had a home alarm system installed and kept a hunting knife next to her bed because they had received death threats. They lived in Connecticut basically till 1953. So tell us a little bit about what happens to that family after 1953. Um, yeah, well, they were in Enfield for about uh, a decade and maybe six years before they left. This, and this is really a pivotal moment. Uh, in Peekskill, New York, uh, he was set, Paul Robeson was set to sing in an outdoor concert. But there were a number of organizations that were determined to thwart that. And they came en masse to break up the concert physically. He came back a couple of weeks later to resume the, con uh, the, the concert and they did it again. And there were a number, I mean, think, uh, the only, the only um, uh, parallel I can think of is the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I mean, there were literally hundreds of um, furious, vicious, violent, uh, racists and anti-communists who wanted to stop him. And I, you know, his life was in danger both of those times. And a lot of the concert goers were injured um, and the police did nothing about it. Uh, so after that, the criticism or the danger to Paul Robeson moved from just political to physical as well. And after that is when Eslanda uh, not only uh, put an alarm system up in their home, but also apparently put a weapon in his, her nightstand at night to, to protect herself. And that's pretty dramatic, you know, a pretty dramatic piece of uh, reporting. But I have no reason to believe that that's not true. I think that she knew she could and she knew she had to possibly protect her and her son when Paul was away doing his work. And I know that he becomes enmeshed in the McCarthy era. Could you, right. could you explain that? Yeah. After World War II, the trade union movement was powerful. The civil rights struggles were gaining traction and uh, the country was changing for the better. The internationally, the competition with the Soviet Union was heating up and there was a, uh, a sort of an international rivalry on who was gonna be the most, uh, uh, the big gun in, in the world. And this, this was the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War. In the United States, there were, you know, people like uh, Hoover and others uh, in, in, the, in Congress were very uh, happy if everyone just shut up about it and, you know, allowed them to, to, to criticize anything that was progressive. Whether it was communist or not, didn't matter to them. 
if it was not highly conservative, they'd go after it because they, they found out that going after somebody and calling them a communist was a sure way to besmirch their reputations. So that's what was happening in the course of Robeson coming back to the United States, both Paul and, and Essie, after being away for so long. And this was an opportunity for conservatives um, and reactionary forces in the country to take a shot at him. Both Paul and Eslanda at different times were called before the House on American Activities Committee. And those are recorded, they're transcribed, um, so you can hear what they had to say. But there was a, they were like, uh, you know, vicious comedy acts. The, the people who led the hearings uh, were uh, rude and asking stupid questions and, and they were uh, harassing speakers or witnesses or people who were uh, forced to come to them. And, you know, there weren't many ways you could turn uh, if you were a progressive who did not want to engage in uh, who's a commie and uh, who's not. Um, they knew that the real purpose of all this activity was to tamp down political activists and so both, both Paul and Essie uh, had to go through that, that ringer. Um, they came out the other end, but just the fact that they were there um, left a mark on their, you know, their public reputations. Now, what years is the McCarthy era? What does that cover? Oh, well, uh, it was all the entire 1950s, but, uh, and it was the beginning of the 1960s, it was still, uh, happening. Would he fall in that category of what they call blacklisted, where you really couldn't get entertainment contracts, you couldn't work for any of the major film studios? Right. Yes. Um, that was, uh, that became a very effective way to take public artists out of the sight of the public. So if you were an actor, if you were a playwright, if you were a stage performer, a television performer, and your name showed up on a list that you had one at one time signed a petition that Hoover decided was a Russian petition or a communist petition, you would you had two choices. You could either say this is none of your business. I'm a, an American and you know, nobody's going to push me around, which is exactly what Robeson said. Or you could submit, and this is what was really per pernicious about this system. You could submit to what the House on American Activities Committee uh, insisted upon, which is that you would name names. You would talk about other people who are also communists or were somehow associated with activities that were you know, not recognized as patriotic. Uh, and a number of people did that. I think they did that out of weakness and out of fear. 
and the most ironic thing about being blacklisted is that when the congressional committee would ask you questions about a certain person, they'd say, oh, so is this person a communist? Uh, the committee actually knew whether or not they were communists because they had done the kind of uh, research before that. And it wasn't that they wanted to know new information. It's that they wanted to be able to have somebody else confirm it publicly so that the, um, the, the object of this red baiting would be further criticized and further humiliated. So there were an enormous amount of really, really fine performers and entertainers who, uh, as well as trade union people and political people uh, who found their lives literally ruined. Teachers who were kicked out of teaching at schools simply because someone else said that they were a red. Um, a good example of this would be uh, people like, and I'm not sure everybody knows all these performers, but people like Zero Mostel, who was one of the earliest Tevias in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Zero Mostel was very much in the tradition of sort of left-wing political people, but Mostly what he was interested in was performing. I remember Grandpa Walton and the Waltons, Will Gear. Will Gear was one of those people, too. Uh, you may have seen the biopic of uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz in the last year. Uh, Lucy signed a petition because her uncle was in the Communist Party, and that came back to haunt her decades later, even though she had no political activity on her record. Uh, after that. So there were a number of people, hundreds and hundreds of people whose lives were ruined. And I think that the, um, the damage was really done because there was no effective way to uh, get together and, and protect yourself. There was a group called the Hollywood 10, and these were all mostly script writers and authors and they got together as a group to oppose uh, this kind of harassment by the Un-American Activities Act Committee. Um, but it, it was really always a defensive battle. How um, do Paul and Essie's lives end? Well, they um, moved from Enfield in 1953. Paul Robeson, was, uh, didn't, didn't pass away until 1976, I think. Yeah, 1976 at the age 77, but his health was not good for, for quite a while. I, I personally think that he underwent um, a great deal of stress from all this controversy. He was constantly at the, at, uh, in, the in the public focus and uh, it took a toll on him, I think, physically and mentally. In fact, we know that emotionally he, he had a ve some very, very difficult times uh, with his mental health, uh, particularly, uh, I think, starting in, in Europe. And we'll never know exactly why all this happened, but it was very clear that there was underhanded work going on by the FBI, which we didn't learn until the 1970s with the COINTELPRO program where the FBI 
decided who was an enemy and decided how to harass and and maybe and more uh, any opponents and uh, illegally. Now this is very very became very very clear with the church committee uh, hearings in Congress. But up until that time, people didn't really know that they were. You know, everybody thought they were paranoid people like Paul Robeson. But you know, paranoid people have enemies too, and these enemies were the FBI. So he uh, he never really totally retired, but he spent his time uh, in in a much quieter setting. But but he you know he lived to be seventy seven, and uh, Eslanda was. Uh, and Paul Jr., they were a family unit all during that time. Uh, Essie uh, published more anthropological works, but it was after they got their passports back that he he started to, maybe a little time after that, but by the 1960s, he had semi-retired. And they lived in, in New York after that. Um, so it was a, a sort of a, um, it was probably not the kind of uh, retirement he deserved. I think he deserved to either continue his work unabated or completely retire in, in harmony with the earth. But he didn't get to do either of those things because he had taken his stand and uh, would never back down from his political beliefs. Steve, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today and bringing us this really significant story. I think uh, the, both of the Robesons are such pioneers and were such strong people. And it's so heartbreaking to know that they had such bad luck, luck and bad forces in action against their careers. But it's a great story and we're happy you brought it to us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. To hear more about a Connecticut citizen who was arrested and tried for being a communist, listen to his firsthand account from El Martyr in Episode 7, A Communist Arrest in 1950s New Haven. To learn more, get your copy of the summer 2022 issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplore.org. And to learn more about Hartford history from the grassroots, Visit the Shoe Leather History Project at shoeleatherhistoryproject.com. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.